Well, this is uh, so exciting. Uh, I feel like we're having a tent revival, you know? <laughs> so at the end of this, there's going to be an invitation. The choir will be singing. I'm going to ask thousands of you to come. <laughs> you say, Billy, what's going to happen if I come forward? <laughs> I'm going to give you some literature. <laughs> Write to me, Billy Graham, Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's all the address you need. No, this is great. I, I, I'm loving this. I'm loving being with you. And I think that there's a, a very positive spiritual value for us to study men in church history. Uh, this is really like Hebrews 11 brought up to date. I mean, in Hebrews 11, by faith Enoch, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses. Well, church history allows us just to continue Hebrews 11. And it's by faith, John Wycliffe, by faith, Martin Luther, by faith, George Whitfield. And so I want us to look this morning at George Whitfield. And for any of you who will have interest in reading about George Whitfield, uh, the bookstore reminded me I've, I've written a biography on George Whitfield. <laughs> so uh, I'm too humble to bring this up, but. Uh, the <laughs> But they have a, a lot of copies over in the bookstore, and I've got all the best of the best quotes by George Whitfield in this, and anything that I've said in the course of this message, if you want further documentation, it's all footnoted, first source, etc. So I want us to talk about George Whitfield, and why talk about George Whitfield? Because I believe that he is arguably the greatest evangelist God has ever given to the church since the Apostle Paul. He lived in the, in the 18th century, and he uniquely was used by God on both sides of the Atlantic. He was used on the English side of the Atlantic to lead the evangelical awakening in England, in Scotland, and, <clears throat> and in Wales. But he was also, I think, the seminal figure in the Great Awakening, which was the greatest movement of the Spirit of God on American soil. Uh, Jonathan Edwards first got it going, but George Whitfield came and poured gas on the fire, and, 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 and it blew up in, into such an extraordinary effect that some people call George Whitfield actually the founding father of America. He died in 1770, but it was his preaching that, that just set the colonies on fire. More people saw George Whitfield than ever saw George Washington. Uh, George Whitfield was really the unifying force of the colonies before the colonies came together as the United States. Uh, George Whitfield... Uh, had an extraordinary industry in preaching. He preached for 34 years. And in those 34 years, he preached 18,000 formal sermons, most of them to thousands of people. But when you add his preaching, he would preach often a sermon after the sermon. And when you include his preaching in schools and in large estates, uh, the number reaches 30,000. So he preached almost a thousand sermons every year for 34 years. Uh, the, the indefatigable drive of George Whitfield is unparalleled in, in church history. And so what I want to do is, is just introduce you to him. W William Cooper, who wrote, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, said, the apostolic times are upon us in the preaching of George Whitfield. And John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, uh, was once asked, who's the greatest preacher you've ever heard? And he said, oh, that's so easy. Uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said, the hardest thing would be to tell you who is the second greatest preacher. But the greatest preacher without question is George Whitfield. J.C. Ryle said, I believe no English preacher has ever possessed such a combination of qualities as Whitfield. George Whitfield stands alone. Now, he said that in a day when Spurgeon was at his height of popularity. J.C. Ryle ranks Whitfield above Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon himself said, 
I've only had one mentor in the ministry. Though they were separated by, uh, let's say, a, a century, I've only had one mentor in the ministry after whom I have modeled my preaching, and that is George Whitfield. There's a real sense in which we cannot understand Charles Haddon Spurgeon and his preaching without understanding his mentor and example, George Whitfield. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, said, other men merely existed. Whitfield lived. Robert Murray McShane, a favorite son of Scotland who flamed out for God at age 29, said, oh, for just one week of Whitfield's life. If I could just live Whitfield's life for just one week. So he is an extraordinary individual, to say the least. So let me, let me walk us through his life. I just want to introduce you to this man. Uh, he is a man who was mightily used by God. I'm going to give you certain headings, and we'll see how this works, but let's begin with the early years. He was born in 1714. Just to put him in historical perspective, Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703. So he's born 11 years after Jonathan Edwards in England, in Gloucester, England. His parents owned an inn, the Bell Inn, and his father died when he was two years old. His mother remarried horribly which ended in a divorce. And so George grew up um, really living a life of sin. He said, I had a knowledge of sin, but no knowledge of Christ. He helped his mother by working in the inn and really developed an ability to be able to stand up and to entertain the travelers who would spend the night in the inn. And one of the travelers who came through said to him, have you ever thought about going to school? going to the university. And Whitfield said, there's no way I could go to the university. There's no way I have the resources. My mother doesn't have the resources to go. The man explained to Whitfield, you could go to Oxford, which was the leading university in all of England, obviously. And if if you rent yourself out as a servant to the elite students there, You can clean their rooms, you can do their laundry, you can even go to class for them, you can read their, uh, write their papers, and they will pay you, and you can go through school that way. So George Whitfield, without a cent in his pocket, goes to Oxford, and there he enrolls in Pembroke College, and there he becomes one who scrubbed the floors, who washed laundry who doubled down in class time and pushed himself. And in the middle of that, there was within him a desire to be right with God. Um, But he didn't know how to be right with God because he had never really heard the gospel of grace. And so Whitfield began a, a, a pursuit that would pacify his guilty conscience before God. One day, a young man, a fellow student, came up to him by the name of Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, and said, we've started a small group Bible study. Would you like to join us? And so in this small group Bible study is Charles Wesley, John Wesley, George Whitfield, and a a couple of other young students. Not a bad little uh, Bible study to be a part of, but here's the deal they were all lost. Not a one of them knew Christ. Uh, they, they were all trying by their own self-righteousness to achieve acceptance with God in heaven. And the harder they tried, the worse it became. And, and, and Whitfield literally, like Martin Luther when he was in the Catholic Church, Whitfield almost punished his body to the extent that his, his very health was at stake because of fasting and vigils, etc. One day, Charles Wesley approaches him and says, I have a book I think you would enjoy reading. It was written by a Scottish Baptist preacher, Henry Scrugel. The title of the book summarizes what the new birth is. The title of the book was The Life of God in the Soul of a Man. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it is to be born again. It is the life of God in the soul of a man. 
And Whitfield took this book and read it, and it was like his eyes were open, the veil was removed. He, he saw it's not what he does for God that would commend him to God. It's what God must do in him. It is what God has already done for him in the cross of Christ, but it is what the Holy Spirit must do in him. And in that search, George Whitfield was born again. He was birthed from above. Uh, this little Bible study became known as the Holy Club, and it was named by the other students. Uh, it was a title of, of mockery, really, looking down, and they were so disciplined. Now, the Wesleys are still not converted. Whitfield is first in everything in his relationship with the Wesleys, but uh, Whitfield and the Wesleys begin to so discipline themselves in Bible study, prayer, fasting, serving, giving the poor, that the other students hung the name on them Methodists. And that was really the beginning of the Methodist movement because they were so methodical in their spiritual disciplines in pursuing the Lord. And the Methodists actually began as a Calvinistic Methodist movement under the leadership of George Whitfield, and it would later, two centuries later, be joined by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who grew up as a Calvinistic Methodist. Interesting side note. So, George Whitfield, as soon as he is converted, he takes leadership of this group. He, he returns back to his home, and there he, he, he is ordained as a, as a deacon, and after being ordained as a deacon, he was given an opportunity to, to actually preach a sermon in his home church, and when he preached, it was extraordinary, the effect. And Whitfield said that he immediately knew that the hand of God was upon him and that his heart was aflame to preach the gospel. He is 21 years of age. He, doors began to open in England. Whitfield would preach in various uh, venues. And by the age, by age 23, Whitfield had become a phenomenon in preaching in England. It was a day in which the sermons were dry. Men would stand in the pulpit and just read their notes with their face buried in the notes. There, there, there was no dynamic. The preachers preached with their hands in their pockets and, and just with a monotone voice. And Whitfield burst onto the scene preaching and pleading and urging and declaring and announcing. England has never heard preaching like this. And when he was 23 years of age, he received a letter from John Wesley. John and Charles have taken a ship to Georgia to do missionary work. Both John and Charles are still unconverted and lost. John Wesley said, I went to the colonies to convert uh, the natives, but who will convert me? So Whitfield receives this letter, and he said his heart leaped out of his, out of his chest. He felt it was really the, the, the call of God upon his life. And so Whitfield uh, makes plans to sail to the colonies. The ship, the Whitaker, was delayed in his departure. That gave Whitfield more time to preach uh, throughout England, and his, his popularity is just increasing because they've never heard powerful, dynamic preaching. And, and that's why these other men would say the apostolic age is upon us, not that he's an apostle, but preaching like in the book of Acts that calls for repentance, that, that calls for saving faith. So Whitfield gets on the boat. It took over four months to sail from England to the colonies. And by the way, Whitfield would cross the Atlantic Ocean in his life 13 times. He would spend four years of his life on a ship crossing the Atlantic as he was the primary leader in the Great Awakenings on both sides of the Atlantic. 
Well, when he arrives in, in, in Georgia, he finds out that the Wesleys have already left. And the reason they left is they had debt that they could not pay, and there was a warrant out for them. And so they returned back to England. Whitfield's here by himself, and he notices that there are orphans who are not being cared for. And his heart was drawn to the orphans, and he purposes that he will plant an orphanage, but he needs the resources, the finances. So he gets on a ship, and he sails back to England in order to raise the resources. When he lands in England, he discovers that his two good friends, John and Charles Wesley, have been born again. They are now believers. And it will be this message that will be the primary message of the Great Awakening, that you must be born again. Uh, Whitfield's preaching would be, would be laced with this truth of regeneration. For Luther, it was the doctrine of justification. For Calvin, it was the doctrine of predestination. For Whitfield, it was the doctrine of regeneration. And so they began to preach the new birth in England, and Whitfield, a young, zealous, fiery preacher, went so far as to say even the ministers of the Church of England need to be born again. They are unconverted, and they were the, the, the blind leading the blind. And so because of that, Whitfield has been preaching in churches. He now is… these church doors are closed to him, and we can understand why. Uh, The ministers who have been scolded publicly that you don't know the Lord, they're not going to invite Whitfield to come into their pulpit. And so Whitfield is left with no other choice but to go to the outdoors and to begin to preach there. Isn't that interesting? God closes one door, but He opens another door, and the door that was closed, Whitfield would only be able to preach to five, six, seven hundred people, but in the open field, He would be able to preach to thousands of people. So, Whitfield goes to Bristol. That would be where George Mueller, years later, would have his orphanage. Um, He goes to Bristol where there are coal miners who are working under, uh, underground, just hardened men, uh, living a, a rough life. And as Whitfield goes, he makes the announcement that at a certain time in the afternoon, he will be preaching in the open field. He has no idea if anyone will even come. He has a little field lectern, something like this, but far more flimsy, and and, and he sets it up in the field, and the first day, there, there's just a handful of coal miners who, who come out of the ground, and they come to, to hear Whitfield preach, and they've never heard anything like this. They have never heard that Jesus is the friend of sinners, that Jesus has come to seek and to save that which is lost, that Jesus has come not for those who are well, but for those who are sick that Jesus has come not for those who are righteous, but He's come for the unrighteous and to call the unrighteous to repentance. And these coal miners, their faces would just be covered with black soot. As Whitfield is preaching, he looks down to see them. He sees two white lines on their cheek. He cannot detect what it is until he finally realizes realizes that it is the tears that is flowing down their face and washing away the black soot as they are under the deep conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. And they flee to Christ, and they embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. They go back down into the coal mine, and they begin to tell their other friends, and day by day this begins to grow until at the end of about of a month of preaching, there are, it is estimated there are some 20,000 people from the surrounding towns and, and blacksmiths and coal miners and, and farmers coming to hear Whitfield preach. This is a phenomenon that church history has no reference point. 
to, to this point, no one has been outside of a church building like this, except for a few exceptions. But even those, it would just be a tiny little pocket of people like the Lollards under John Wycliffe's preaching. So, Whitfield is ready to take this to London. So, Whitfield travels to London. He is 24 years old, and he electrifies London. The Spirit of God is powerfully upon him, and Whitfield, in the course of three months in London, when you add up all the people to whom he preached, the year 1739, it is estimated that he preached in person to over one million people. He would go to Hyde Park, for example, uh, on, a, on a holiday, and the upper uh, elite of society had their own clubs to go to, but the common person had nowhere to go on, on a holiday, and so they could only go to commons, which would be like a, a green park, and there would be multiplied thousands of people there. And so Whitfield would come, and they would literally have to put him over their head and pass him over their head to get him into the middle. Uh, there's all kinds of amusements that are going on. There, there's bear fights, there's cock fights, there's, there, there's gambling. And Whitfield goes into the midst of it and would stand on a, on a rock wall and just stand and say, I've come here today to talk to you about your soul. And he would begin to preach, and the people would would stop what they were doing, and they would listen. And untold numbers were converted. And Whitfield would never give anyone assurance of their salvation or say, you are converted. He would always say, the last day will bear it out. And at the height of all this in Hyde Park, it is estimated that he preached to, in one sermon, 80,000 people. Uh, Whitfield said, I'm not certain if everyone on the outer perimeter could actually hear, but there would be men, uh, like at Nehemiah 8, with the revival at the Watergate, who would pass along the message who could hear to those who were on the perimeter. And it was a, a powerful effect. If I, if I had been Whitfield, I would have stayed. Whitfield decides he wants to go to the colonies as he's riding the the crest of this wave. He's going to get on a ship and make his second trip to to the colonies, and he lands in Delaware. And there in Delaware will begin a preaching tour that will last maybe 15 months. It is regarded as the greatest itinerant preaching tour in the history of the church. You would have to go back to Paul's missionary journeys in order to find some comparison, though the effect of Whitfield in the cities was unprecedented. He he goes to Philadelphia when Philadelphia is a town of of 12,000 people, and there there are 6,000 people there to hear him preach. He gets on a horse and and rides out of Philadelphia, and he goes to New York City, and there he preaches to 6,000, then to 8,000, then then to 15, finally to 20,000 people. There are not 20,000 people living in New York City. He then rides to Boston, and and it's just more of the same as he preaches in in the Boston Commons. And Whitfield goes up and down the eastern seacoast. Now, just remember this. Jonathan Edwards is a local pastor. He is in one pulpit, in one city, in one place there at Northampton with only a few little tiny excursions out to preach an ordination sermon. But Whitfield is a man on the move. And Whitfield is going from major city to major city. He comes down to the south. He preaches in Charleston. He preaches in Savannah. He goes back up to Philadelphia, and Benjamin Franklin is in such anticipation of of Whitfield's coming that Benjamin Franklin builds a a tabernacle, a wooden tabernacle that that will hold thousands of people, much like this tent, but just with a covering. But by the time Whitfield arrives, the people cannot even fit into the 
tabernacle that Benjamin Franklin has built, that building would become the beginning of the University of Penn. It was built for Whitfield. It actually became the start of the University of Penn. And what is ironic, if you've been watching uh, the news lately, University of Penn has just torn down the Whitfield statue and have removed it. Uh, over social issues, and I would need a lot of time to walk through and explain that. But Whitfield preaching in there in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin did the math, and how many people could stand in a square block? And he said there are at least 30,000 people here to hear Whitfield preach at a time when Philadelphia had a population of only 12,000 people. It's more than twice the population of the city. Uh, this is so unprecedented. There, there's, there, there's really no comparison that can be made on what, on what God is doing. And it is estimated that one-tenth of the population of all of the colonies had heard and seen Whitfield preach in person. It would be on this preaching tour that Whitfield receives a letter from Jonathan Edwards, inviting him to come to Northampton. This would be the only time that Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield would be in the same place at the same time as Whitfield comes to preach for Edwards. And Whitfield comes with the power of the Holy Spirit upon him, and as Jonathan Edwards sat on the front pew and listened to Edwards to Whitfield preach, Edwards wept like a baby. He had never heard such preaching. And it would be less than one year later that Jonathan Edwards would preach sinners in the hands of an angry God. There are many scholars who believe that Edwards would have never preached with such vivid imagery, with such intentional power to convert the lost to strike such terror into them if he had not heard George Whitfield preach in his own pulpit and see the effect upon his own heart and his own soul as he melted under the preaching of George Whitfield. He said the whole town of Northampton is now alive unto God as a result of Whitfield's visit here to Northampton. And so one of the greatest contributions that George Whitfield made was the influence that he cast upon Jonathan Edwards, who was the brilliant intellect of the day, but now uh, he saw the value of what Edwards would call raising the affections of the listener. Edwards then began to intentionally not only instruct the mind, but to ignite the heart and to invite the will that the Word of God would have a full effect upon the full person, not just teach the mind, but also strike the heart like a lightning bolt out of heaven, and to issue the call to come to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, shortly thereafter, after this encounter in Edwards' church, uh, Whitfield goes to Middleton, Connecticut. Middleton, Connecticut, and I, I want to read you the testimony of a man who was converted under Whitfield's preaching at Middleton. It's one of the most amazing uh, testimonies. I'll never forget the day when I was in seminary. This is like 40 years ago, and I heard the professor read this, and I was so moved by this. I want you to, I want you to hear this. It's the account of a farmer named Nathan Cole describing the hearing that Whitfield is coming to Middleton to preach. He said, I heard that Whitfield was at Long Island, then Boston, and next Northampton. That's Edwards. Then one morning, all of a sudden, about eight or nine o'clock, there came a messenger to me in the field saying, Mr. Whitfield preached at Hartford yesterday and is to preach at Middletown this morning. October 23rd, 1740, at 10 o'clock in the morning, I was in my field at work. I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and ran home and ran through my house and bade my wife get ready quick to go and hear Mr. Whitfield preach in Middleton. 
And I ran out into my pasture from my horse with all my might, fearing that I should be too late to hear him. I brought my horse home and soon mounted and took up my wife and went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear. And when my horse began to be out of breath, I would get down and put my wife on the saddle. Apparently, he was making his wife run while he was... (laughs) While he's riding the horse. (laughs) This man needs to be saved. (laughs) Okay? A lot of sin to confess. So... I would get down and put my wife on the saddle and bid her ride as fast as she could and not stop or slack for me except I I bid her. And so I would run until I was much out of breath and then mount my horse again. And soon I did several times to favor my horse and we improved every moment to get along as if we were fleeing for our lives, all the while fearing we would be too late to hear the sermon for we still had 12 miles to ride double. And when we had come within half a mile of the road that comes down to Middleton, on high land I saw before me a cloud, a a fog rising. I I first thought it came from the great river, the, the Connecticut River, but as I came near the road, I heard a noise, something like a low, rumbling thunder and presently found it was the noise of horses' feet coming down the road, and that this cloud was a cloud of dust made by the horses' feet. It rose some rods into the air over the tops of the hills and trees, and when I came within about 20 rods of the road, I could see men and horses slipping along in the cloud-like shadows. And as I drew nearer to the road, It seemed like a steady stream of horses and their riders, scarcely a horse more than its length behind another, all all in a lather and foam with sweat, their breath rolling out of their nostrils in the cloud of dust. Every horse seemed to go with all his might to carry his rider to hear good news from heaven for the saving of souls. It made me tremble to see the sight how the world was in a struggle. I found a vacancy between two horses to to slip in my horse. This is like getting on the (laughs) I-5. And my wife said, our clothes will be spoiled. See how they look. They're covered with dust. We went down in the stream. I heard no man speak a word all the way, three miles, but everyone pressing forward in great haste. And when we got to the old meeting house, there was a great multitude. It was said to be three or 4,000 people assembled together. We got off our horses and shook off the dust, and the ministers were then coming to the meeting house. I turned and looked towards the great river and saw the ferry boats running swiftly back and forth, bringing loads of people, and the oars rode nimble and quick. Everything, men's horses and boats, everything seemed to be struggling for their life. The land, the banks over the rivers looked black with people and horses all along the 12 miles. I saw no man at work in his field. All seemed to be gone. When I saw Mr. Whitfield come up onto the scaffold, he looked almost angelical, a young, slim slender youth before some thousands of people with a bold, undaunted countenance, and my hearing how God was with him everywhere as he, as he came, it solemnized my mind and put me into a trembling fear before he began to preach. Now, this man is unconverted. And he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God, and a sweet, solemn solemnity sat on his brow. And my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. Then I was convinced 
of the doctrine of election. That day, Whitfield was preaching on the doctrine of sovereign election, and this unconverted man was, uh, was an Arminian, and this sermon on the doctrine of election shook Nathan Cole to the very core of his being to see that he was not in control of his salvation, but that God is in control of salvation. So he says, I was convinced of the doctrine of election and went right to quarreling with God about it, because all that I could do would not save me. And he had decreed from eternity who would be saved and who would not. It would be several months before Nathan Cole would be converted, but it was this sermon by George Whitfield that literally busted up the hard soil in his heart and brought him to humility before the throne of grace. And as he pondered the truths of sovereign grace, it was used by God to bring this man to saving faith in Jesus Christ. George Whitfield was a man who preached the doctrines of grace He preached total depravity. He preached sovereign election. He preached definite atonement. He preached the effectual call of the Spirit. He preached the perseverance of the saints. Unlike Wesley, who was a semi-Pelagian, who was an Arminian, George Whitfield believed in the sovereignty of God in salvation, and he took that message to the nations. J.C. Ryle, well, excuse me let, me, let me just say a few more things. After this New England tour, Whitfield comes down to Savannah, and from there he will sail back to England. When he left England some 15, 16 months earlier, he had just preached to a million people in the course of the summer. He, he was riding this wave of momentum in his ministry and preaching. And when he returns back to England, he is shocked at what he will discover. John Wesley has written a track, a pamphlet, attacking Whitfield on the truth of predestination. It was a vicious attack. And because Wesley had been there by himself for some period of time, he had won over the people and had won over the crowds. And as Whitfield now returns, he is put in the awkward position of having to defend himself, and it led to a painful separation with the Wesleys. J.C. Ryle commenting on Whitfield's commitment to the doctrines of grace writes this, Whitfield grasped the great related chain of truths revealed in the New Testament the Father's electing love, Christ's substitutionary death on behalf of those whom the Father had given Him, and the Spirit's infallible work in bringing to salvation those for whom it was appointed. These doctrines of free grace were the essential theology of His ministry from the very beginning, and consequently it was the theology of the movement which began under His preaching." Close quote. Whitfield said unashamedly, I must preach the gospel of Christ, and I cannot do so without speaking of sovereign election. He said, the doctrines of our election fill my soul with holy fire and afford me great confidence as I preach the gospel. He said, nothing but the doctrines of the Reformation can do this. Man is nothing. He has a free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven till God works in him to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I want you to understand that this greatest evangelist that God has ever given to the church was a man who held to the Reformed doctrines of the sovereignty of God in salvation. It was no hindrance to Whitfield to believe in this. In fact, it catapulted and launched Whitfield to preach with mounting confidence that God can overcome the resistance in a lost man's heart, and that God can bring sinners to the foot of the cross, 
there to be saved. Whitfield preached, if we deny election, we must partly at least glory in ourselves, that I had some unique contribution to make to my salvation. And so Whitfield preached with extraordinary power. And not only did he preach the doctrines of election, but as I've already noted, he preached with passion. He preached with fervency. He preached with urgency of the moment. In a day when preaching had degenerated into a a dry ritual of merely reading one's notes in the pulpit, Whitfield burst onto the scene preaching, not in some stoic, cold reading of sermon notes, but with a voice that roared like a lion. Ryle commented, his soul was all passion, his heart was all fire. Repression for him would have meant extinction. Lloyd-Jones explained, the thing that characterized the preaching of Whitfield was the zeal, the fire, the passion, the flame. He was a most convicting and alarming preacher. Just a footnote, Lloyd-Jones, who was a part of helping get the Banner of Truth publishing house up and going that reprinted the Reformers and, uh, in the 16th century. And Lloyd-Jones, who had the annual Puritan conference, the Puritans out of the 17th century, would comment about his own preaching, Lloyd-Jones. He said, I'm not a 16th century man. I love the Reformers, but that's not where my heart truly lies. And he said, I'm not a 17th century man, though I love the Puritans. He said, I'm an 18th century man. I stand with Whitfield and the Edwards and the others who preached in the Great Awakening. Ryle said the sermon had been entombed as a religious art form. When Whitfield arrived on the scene, Whitfield rescued preaching and made it what it ought to have been all along, a desperate plea to a perishing people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it was contagious. David Hume, the the Scottish philosopher, skeptic, agnostic, was once seen going to hear Whitfield preach. And someone stopped Hume and said, what? I didn't know that you believed the Bible. Hume said, I don't, but Whitfield does. I want to hear him preach. Uh, There is a a magnetic drawing power about a man who is inflamed with the truth and to preach strong. Whitfield said, the church is asleep. Only a loud voice will awaken it from its slumber. And Whitfield would, would often weep during his sermons as he would preach. And he said, you blame me for weeping? But how can I help it when you will not even weep for your own soul? I will weep for your soul if you will not weep for your own soul. And so Whitfield came and preached in a way such as had not been previously heard and was stirring up other preachers to preach the same. My favorite sermon by Whitfield is entitled, The Conversion of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus up in the sycamore tree. And, and you can access that, I think, on, on, on um, whatever that's called, Google or whatever. And uh, I've heard about it. Uh, let, let me just read you one little excerpt from the conversion of Zacchaeus, just so you can hear what it would have sounded like to have heard George Whitfield preach in such a demonstrative way. Make haste then, O sinners, make haste, and come by faith to Christ this moment, this day, even this hour. If you believe Jesus Christ shall come and make His eternal abode in your hearts, which one of you is made willing to receive the King of glory? Which one of you obeys His call as Zacchaeus did? Alas, why do you stand still? How do you know whether Jesus will ever call you again? Come now, then, Poor, guilty sinners, come away. Poor, lost, undone publicans, make haste and come to Christ this moment. Come away to Christ. 
The Lord condescends to invite Himself to come under the filthy roofs of the houses of our souls. Do not be afraid of entertaining Him. Remember, He told Zacchaeus, come down, I must eat with you tonight. He will fill you with all peace and joy in believing. Do not be ashamed to run before the multitude and to have all manner of evil spoke against you falsely for His sake. One sight of Christ will make amends for all. Zacchaeus was laughed at, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But what of that? Zacchaeus is now crowned in glory, as you also shall shortly be, if you believe in Christ and are reproached for His name's sake. Do not, therefore, put me off with frivolous excuses. There's no excuse that can be given, for you're not coming to Christ now. You are lost, you are undone, you are without a Savior, and if He is not glorified in your salvation, He will be glorified in your destruction. If He does not come and make His abode in your hearts, you will take up an eternal abode with the devil and his angels in hell. Oh, that the Lord would be pleased to pass by some of you at this time. Oh, that He may call you by His Spirit and make you a willing people in the day of His power. For I know my calling will not do unless He, by His effectual grace, compel you to come in. Oh, that you once felt what it was like to receive Jesus Christ into your hearts. You would soon, like Zacchaeus, give Him everything You do not love Christ because you do not know Him. You do not come to Him because you do not feel your want of Him. You feel that you are whole and you are not brokenhearted. You think you are not sick, at least not sensible of your sickness, and therefore no wonder you do not come to Christ. Oh, that God would wound you with the sword of His Spirit and cause the arrows of conviction to sink deep into your hearts. Oh, that a dart, a ray of divine light would come shining into your souls. If you do not feel yourself lost without Christ, you are of all men most miserable. Your souls are dead. You are not only an image of hell, but in some degree hell itself. You carry hell about with you. Oh, that I would see some of you sensible of this. Oh, that I would hear you cry out, Lord, break this hard heart. Lord, deliver me from the body of this death. Lord, draw me to yourself. Lord, make me willing to come after you. Lord, I am lost. Save me or I perish. Is this your case? How soon would the Lord stretch forth His almighty hand and say to you, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. That's just one portion of one page. It it is a pleading. It is a, a calling. It is a summoning of those who are without Christ to come to the Savior and there to be, to be saved. As Whitfield preached like this, he was resisted, he was opposed, he was attacked by the press, he was attacked by hecklers. They would throw stones at him, they would throw dirt, they would take dead cats and excrement and throw at him as he would preach. They would hire trumpeters and drummers to be up in trees to try to drown out his voice. Whitfield writes in his journal, I was honored with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cats thrown at me. I received many blows and wounds. One was particularly large and near my temples, but I thought of Stephen. I was in great hopes that, like him, I should be dispatched and go off into the immediate presence of my master. He was just an indomitable force as he preached. Businessmen in London, though Whitfield was an itinerant evangelist, built not one but two churches for him to preach in whenever he happened to be passing through town. 
there was Whitfield's Tabernacle, and it was in Whitfield's Tabernacle that Martin Lloyd-Jones was ordained into the gospel ministry. Wherever Whitfield went, people turned out to hear him. John Newton remarked that the streets of London in the Haymarket area were as lit with torches at five o'clock in the morning, carried by large crowds going to hear Whitfield preach, as they were in the evening with multitudes going to the opera. The account of Whitfield's preaching is just virtually unmatched. Upon his return back to London, after having seen Sarah Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' wife, he longed for a wife, and he rather hastily married a widow, Elizabeth James. And it was uh, somewhat of an awkward relationship because she had no idea what she was joining as Whitfield is traversing the globe in his preaching. But she accompanied him on much of his preaching tours. There was a five-month preaching tour of Scotland. Uh, there on one occasion, he stood on, the, on a very high cliff as it's estimated that maybe 80,000 people were down at the bottom and would project his voice out over the, uh, the high lofted era, area. He preached with such extraordinary success and power that when you come to this point in his life, and I'm at somewhat of a, uh, a struggle to know what to tell you next, because Arnold D- Dalimore, in his two-volume of, of Whitfield's biography, he gets to this point and he says, I, almost, I feel like I just need to fast forward 10 years because every year is the same. Wherever he goes, he preaches, thousands come, people are converted, he stirs up controversy, and it's just repeated scene after scene after scene after scene. Just to fast forward a bit towards the end, he made his fifth trip to America. He's given an honorary degree by Princeton. Um, He sails back to England. The French and Indian War breaks out, so he's confined in England for eight years. He preaches throughout England everywhere and into Scotland and and Wales. After all of this time, this is now 20 years, some 20 years later after first going to the colonies, where he had started an orphanage, the debt of that orphanage has been a millstone around his neck for almost two decades. He finally pays off the the mortgage and the debt to the orphanage in Bethesda. With all of this, John Wesley noted, Mr. Whitfield seemed to be an old, old man being fairly worn out in his master's service. He returns to England He comes back. Before he comes back, his wife dies. The only son she gave him died. He makes his last trip to the colonies. Before he leaves England, he preaches his farewell sermon in London. September 16, 1769. It's from John 10, 26 and 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them from my hand, for my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no man shall pluck them from his hand. He preached his final sermon on English soil, on the sovereignty of God in salvation, and the preserving of those whom he gave to the Son throughout all eternity future. He comes in 1769, his seventh trip to the colonies. He arrives in Charleston. He preaches to huge crowds for 10 consecutive days. He travels further south to to Georgia for for the duration of the winter, and then he travels north for an extensive evangelistic campaign in Philadelphia, New York, and New England. And let me just say this. One Wednesday night in the last church that I pastored, I wanted to simply trace on a map where Whitfield went 
in that 1740 preaching tour. After an hour and a half, I still wasn't finished. Just to try to describe and keep up with where all he went to preach. And so I I am so glossing over so many of the details that I could say to you. But he finally at last comes to Exeter, New Hampshire. He preached the last sermon he would ever preach. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. As he prepared to step into the pulpit to preach that message in an open field, he said to himself, Lord, I'm weary in the work, but I'm not weary of the work. Having preached there in Exeter, he then traveled by horse south to Newburyport, Massachusetts. He has already been to Newburyport to preach. Churches are just spontaneously being planted wherever he goes to preach. There are some 200 churches that have been planted in the colonies simply because as a result of Whitfield's preaching, the people cannot go back into these dead churches with unconverted ministers. So with no plan to plant any churches, it just extemporaneously, by the invisible hand of God, churches are being planted all up and down the eastern seacoast as a result of Whitfield's preaching because the new wine cannot go back into the old wineskin. So he comes to Newburyport, Massachusetts, where he has already preached, where a church has already been birthed, the Old South Presbyterian Church. And as he arrives on Saturday, he is to preach the next Sunday morning at this church. I, I have been in that church. I, and Whitfield said, bury me under the last pulpit I preach in, or bury me under the next pulpit I am to preach in. Whitfield is buried under that pulpit. I've had the privilege of standing in that pulpit and preaching with Whitfield buried beneath. As he is to preach the next morning on Sunday, a couple thousand people gather around the parsonage. They want to hear Whitfield preach on Saturday night. Whitfield goes to the second floor, and he would often do this. He would light a candle. And he would preach as long as the candle flickered. And then when the candle would burn out, he would say, it's time for all good men to retire and would go to sleep. He preached that night with all of his heart. Whitfield suffered from an asthmatic condition. That night, as he is in the pastor's home, his throat begins to close down. He struggles to breathe. He finds that he cannot breathe any longer. He has a traveling secretary, a man who travels with him, who helps him with arrangements. He observes Whitfield's struggle, and at 6 a.m. in the morning, George Whitfield passes from this world into the presence of him whom he had preached all these many years. The word went out, People got in ships and sailed up the coast to Newburyport. There were so many ships in the port, there was not room for any more ships to fit into the port. Some 6,000 people attended the funeral. Back in England, there was a memorial service, and it was preached by John Wesley. Earlier, Whitfield had been asked, Do you think you'll see Wesley in heaven? Whitfield said, no, I do not think I will see Wesley in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of grace, I will never be able to get that close. There remained an affection to the end, and he asked that Wesley would preach his memorial service. And in that service, Wesley said, Have we read or heard of any person since the apostles 
who testified the gospel of the grace of God through so widely extended a place, through so large a part of the habited earth? Have we read or heard of any person who called so many thousands, so many myriads of sinners to repentance? Above all, have we read or heard of any who has been a blessed instrument in the hand of God to bring so many sinners from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God? So George Whitfield, at age 55, having invested the last 34 years of his life, went home to be with the Lord. It is an interesting fact of history that as Whitfield is buried beneath that pulpit, when Benedict Arnold led the colonial soldiers up to Canada to fight against the British, Benedict Arnold directed the colonial troops to Newburyport. He had the tomb opened, and with a knife he cut out a small piece from Whitfield's suit and carried it into battle as though it were the Ark of the Covenant to take something of Whitfield with me into battle. J.C. Ryle remarked, no preacher in England has ever succeeded in arresting the attention of such crowds as Whitfield that he constantly addressed around London. No preacher has ever, has ever been so universally popular in every country that he visited in England, Scotland, and the American colonies. No preacher has ever retained his hold on his hearers so entirely as he did for 34 years. His popularity never waned. As I close this, hear the words of Whitfield from one last sermon. I offer you salvation this day. The door of mercy is not yet shut. Interesting, Edwards will use that very imagery a year later in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. There does yet remain a sacrifice for sin for all who will accept the Lord Jesus Christ. He will embrace you in His arms of love. Turn to Him in a sense of your own worthiness. Tell Him how polluted you are. Tell Him how vile you are. And be not faithless, but believing. What fear you that He will not accept you? Your sins are no hindrance, your unworthiness no hindrance. If your own corrupt hearts do not keep you back, nothing will hinder Christ from receiving you. He loves to see poor sinners coming to Him. He is pleased to see them lie at His feet, pleading His promises. And if you will come to Christ, He will not send you away without His grace and without His Spirit. But you must receive Him. Do not put a slight on His infinite love. He wants you to believe on Him that you might be saved. This, this is all the dear Savior desires, to make you happy that you may leave your sins, to sit down eternally with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me beseech you, come to Jesus Christ. I invite all of you to come to Him and receive Him as your Lord and Savior. He is ready to receive you right now. I invite you to come to Him that you may find rest for your souls. Oh, come to Christ. My heart is full. It is quite full. And I must speak or I shall burst. What? Do you think your souls are of no value? Do you esteem them as not worth saving? Are your pleasures worth more than your souls? Had you rather regard the diversions of this life than the salvation of your souls? If so, you will never be partakers with Him in glory. But if you will come to Christ by faith now, He will supply you with His grace now, and He will bring you to glory hereafter. And there you may sing praises and hallelujahs to the Lamb forever. May this be the happy end of all who hear me preach this day. What a powerhouse of a preacher was George Whitfield. As I bring this to a close, I, nor none of us, 
will ever be the evangelist of George Whitfield. But I'm reminded of what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, that the simple preaching of Jesus will never fail. We can give a simple witness for Jesus. We can give a simple lesson for Jesus. We can give a simple testimony for Jesus. We can preach a simple message for Jesus. The power is not in the messenger. The power is in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be used by God to spread that message as far and as wide as we possibly can, and may it begin right here in Los Angeles where God has planted us. Well, you've been very attentive to listen through all of this. I'm somewhat exhausted. Um, I hope you still are strong of heart. I'm going to close in a word of prayer, and I guess Michael will come up and dismiss us. Go to the bookstore. (laughs) Ask for it by name. (laughs) Tell them Dr. Lawson sent you. (laughs) Father, thank you for your grace that is poured out into your servants that enables them to do what they would otherwise never be able to do. Father, I pray that you would use the example of this dear brother who has gone before us to motivate us, to excite our hearts, to witness to someone, even at the grocery store, a next-door neighbor, a family member, whoever, wherever. Lord, may we be about our master's business. May we be about telling others about Christ. May we see that the simple speaking of Jesus has great power and effect in the lives of others. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.